You are listening to Radio Ramadan 365 Podcasts. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. Welcome to Discourse 19 with Sajjad Ayyub and Sheikh Ibrahim Skatema. Our intentions. We have an interesting question. You, you describe being prim and proper, but hiding a monster behind white clean sheets. Please explain this and how you describe the, the need for honesty on the path. Um, I don't know if I, I, we mentioned it before in this series, but um, I, I think one of the big problems we face is, um, is we, we, ha- we, we aren't as realistic with ourselves as we need to be. We, we, uh, we, we, when we see somebody else get up to mischief, we, um, you know, we, we don't quite recognize that we ourselves do things like that. Also, you know, you know, we have a, a, a sort of a natural bias to seeing ourselves in a rosier light than what we should. And I think most people do. And um, I have a, an example of this that I just had recently professionally. I'd, uh, I'd asked a group of people to, uh, I gave them a set of four binary opposites. Um, uh, so think of it left and right. On the left is insecure and on the right is secure. Uh, on the left is discontented, on the right is fulfilled. On the left is a sense of weakness or victimhood. On the right, the right is a sense of power. On the left is a sense of uh, conflict and the right is a sense of harmony. And I said to them, um, where do you think most people fit in terms of this? Would you put them left or right? And I gave them a a scale that they could use so you know from minus five to plus five and most people were way over to the left when they were looking at other people the same group of people i asked them um literally a minute later what do you think about yourself and they were way over to the right and I said, well, well, explain this delta to me. I mean, um, don't you think these people that you're thinking are all on the left are people like you? Uh, so so uh, um, there's, a, you know, we do this. We have a, 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 quite a tarnished view of others. And we, we have um, quite an elevated view of ourselves. And, um, um, you know, this, I'll never do that. You know, you know, uh, uh, the, this thing I'll never do. Be very careful, because um, uh, your, your human beings are are capable of the most monstrous monstrous things. And you know, we do play the full keyboard. I mean, we we don't just have the angelic high notes. Every human being is capable of quite serious monstrosity. I mean, you know. Um, Otherwise, I, could, I mean, that's this uh, Gordon, uh, John Peterson's point. I mean, there's, you know, the, how do you explain periods of great oppression in history? Like what happened in Germany during the Second World War, what happened in the, in the Soviet Union, you know, in the Soviet era? Um, uh, how did these, you know, how, you know, citizens would walk by and see other citizens just being dragged off in the streets and they wouldn't intervene, nobody would intervene because, so, and in a sense, you were then complicit. So we do, we can become complicit to great monstrosity and we can not only be complicit to great monstrosity, we ourselves can do great monstrosity. And it's, we only protected, other people only protected and we ourselves only protected from a monstrosity insofar as we recognize that it's there. 
if you don't recognize it's there, this thing really can creep up on you. How is it that good people do bad things? You know, well, they, they, they don't realize that they're capable of it until they're actually in it. So, so um, um, you know, we had it's this uh, a lot of work done recently with uh, post-traumatic stress with uh, all of these these American veterans that are coming back from Afghanistan and the Gulf and uh, you know and uh, you know why are so many people so deeply sort of traumatized? Most of the accounts of the trauma isn't what was done to them. What traumatizes them is, is remembering what they themselves did. And why did they experience it as so traumatic? Well, they never thought they were capable of it. They didn't realize that they could, under the right conditions, there's a real monster hiding under here. So, you know, this, you know we're all so good. We're all so holy and, you know, we don't... You know, we drink tea properly and we have, you know, the right length of beard and the kurta, just this length. And it's also, you know, I mean, uh, and to congratulate yourself on your goodness, because you've got all of these trappings. This is a serious error. And it's an error that causes errors. Because you think you're incapable of getting up to mischief. There's very few people who are incapable of getting up to mischief. Under the right conditions, most people can do the most shocking stuff. And precisely the one person who might not get up to mischief is precisely the person who realizes he's quite capable of getting up to shopping stuff. And he therefore has his, 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 his hounds under leash. You know, he, he doesn't let them out the cage. But the person who's not honest with themselves, the person who, uh, you know, kind of um, thinks that, uh, you know, I, I, I'm, butter wouldn't melt in my mouth. That person's... Uh, is in a very exposed place. You describe the practice of dhikr in the circle, but you say that there are etiquettes and responsibilities with this. Why so? There's, there's, so there's, it is, you try to create something in sound that gives us, that reminds us of our primordial state. And our primordial state is one where we are, we, we knew, not knew intellectually, but we knew because we felt, we experienced that we are in some really deep and intimate way connected with everything else. We are part of the oneness. Yeah. And, and dhikr is actually designed to give you that experience, remind you of that experience. What makes it possible is that in the first instance, you, um, you, you meet the dhikr um, in its rhythm. So you very often see people who are unused to dhikr, they, kind of, they sort of move any way they like. You know, though we, the way in which we should do our hadra, there's a, there's a definite movement. You know, it's, it's a forward and backward, hey, Allah, hey, Allah, hey. It's a very definite. And then you get somebody who's never done this before, and he sort of goes, you know, sort of jives along or kind of wiggles his head or kind of doesn't go with it. And, and that's seriously disruptive. It actually breaks the sense of continuity and oneness which the, 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 the group produces. Because you do get the sense when everybody's doing the thing together, 
like uh, a flower opening and closing. And at some point, you're like one of the petals in the flower. You are part of something that's bigger than you. This isn't um, uh, this isn't arcane and sort of mystical knowledge. This is, you know, every army understands this. That's why the first thing they teach you to do is drill in the squad. Um, uh, you you become part of something bigger than you when you drill in the squad. It's not, it's like one arm going up. It's one leg going forward. You know, and, and you do have a, a a real sense of 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 unassailability. I mean, I've. Um, my my experience of this is uh, in my own national service. We were um, we were being drilled five o'clock in the morning one morning uh, uh, in a squad. It was a squad of about thirty uh, troops, and we were being drilled across a street in a, a place called Fortrakenwuchte, which is a, a, a military camp in South Africa. We were being drilled across a, 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 a street at five o'clock in the morning in winter. It's pitch dark, and this truck came trundling down the road towards us and we were dressed in brown military fatigue so it was quite possible the guy didn't see us you know not one of us broke rank not one of us thought of stepping out of the squad and you know we just carried on marching i mean mercifully the truck trucks did stop but it is, i had this feeling i wasn't frightened at all when i was in the squad i had this bizarre experience that if this truck if this idiot in this truck hit us he's going to come off second best you know, so it is amazing. It's a, you get the sense of being one with something bigger than you. You know, people who do dance together experience that that too. You know, I mean the uh, the uh, um, the one of the cornerstones of the development of the rise of the Zulu Empire was the use of dance. They used dance for military drill. Uh, you know, kind of get men to move together, to kind of work together. So, so the, the the purpose of this etiquette is so that you can you can become one with something bigger than you. Uh, and and, and uh, you know, collective movement does that. And you have a the courtesy of being uh, of of being in a circle is that you subordinate yourself to that movement, become one with it, and don't do something disruptive. Because the moment you do something disruptive, you obviously break that whole kind of uh, ambiance. It's, it's not only a courtesy in movement, it's a courtesy in tone. So you get a group of people who are kind of you're producing a particular sound, and then you get one voice that's completely off on its own mission somewhere, you know, it just sounds discordant. And you don't want to produce discordance, you want to produce harmony. So another courtesy is to meet the vicar at its pitch, you know, and, and, and either at its pitch or harmony, but because most of us don't know how to harmonize, you know, because most of us aren't taught to sing properly, so we don't know how to harmonize, actually, you should always meet the thing at its pitch. And with a, if you're the rare person with a skill to harmonize, you harmonize, but don't do discordant. You know, uh, um, don't create an ugly noise. Make it a beautiful sound, not an ugly sound. So courtesy in the in this in the in the circle is very important. Uh, it's um it, it, it is about creating the sense of continuity and oneness and connectedness between people. And um, uh, uh, the the other thing that's important about this further sense of courtesy is consistency. So you see it sometimes here at the Zawe, you get people come and they 
they do this, um, they, they, they sort of, they come and they do practice for a whole night, the whole majlis for the whole night, people are doing dhikr and, you know, and they completely exhaust themselves. And then they also looking a bit spaced the next day and then they go, but then you don't see them for a week, for, for months, you know, because it's too much. The, the issue isn't to do too much. The issue is to do a little consistency, consistently. Um, you know, that's, uh, that's another element to this thing of really having useful practice. You know, a little bit done consistently and sustainably is far more useful to you than a lot done in a big punch that kind of you need to recover from afterwards and don't have the sort of gumption to, to, to do again, you know. So, so consistency is very important in the game. And uh, the, one has a responsibility to be consistent and to act and to, to, to practice, to do the practice as the practice is described to be done, insofar as you're able. You also described dhikr as handing over the affair to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. What do you mean by this? If you do, um, if you have a really powerful hadra, where you've uh, you've you've kind of given it your all, you're not thinking a lot afterwards. Hadra meaning meaning that this 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 uh, vicar, this collect this uh, communal vicar. Um, uh, uh, and and that is a metaphor for what what the vicar really means. I mean, if you. You know, what does the word mean? It means to remember. Um, so uh, uh, it's very difficult to remember two things simultaneously, to occupy your mind with two things simultaneously. You know, um, uh, uh, you know if, um, if uh, well, you and I are talking, right, and I suddenly remember I didn't turn off my stove, uh, uh, then, then, then the next thing you're going to say, I'm not going to hear. You know, I can't give you attention, and this thing that I've just remembered attention at the same time. All right. So, so it's, you know, it's very difficult to give attention properly to two things at the same time. Which means to say, the thing that you're being occupied with now, the 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 all of the equivalents of the stove being left on that we do. Oh my God, I haven't paid him. Oh, what about this? And and I have got to, and this, you know, and I want to do that. And, you know, all of these things, all of these things. Well, um, if you're going to do dhikr, then you have to, you can't do that at the same time. So quite literally, doing dhikr is handing over the affair to Allah. Otherwise, you can't do dhikr. All of the outcomes you're trying to manage, you start, you, you, you're filling your consciousness with something else other than the projects. You're occupying your attention with something other than the project. So it stands to reason then to say that when you are, when you're doing dhikr, you're handing the affair over to Allah. It if, if you're doing the dhikr in, a, in, in any significant way, I mean, if you're actually giving attention to what you're doing, it's not just a slapping of the lips and the tongue and a fiddling with a set of beads. I mean, you're actually giving attention to what you're doing. If you're actually giving attention to what you're doing, you've got to stop giving attention to all the other stuff. All the projects, 
all the plans and plots. <laughs> Hand it over to the great plotter so that you can do the vicar. The only reason we are alive is to discover that we're not in charge. That's quite a dramatic statement for some, for some people quite liberating. For some, it's difficult to see what means, what this means in terms of living our lives. What happened to being responsible? <laughs> I mean, the, so have, 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 has, have things in your life, has anything in your life ended in failure despite your best efforts? Yes. No. Any person who claims that that's never happened to them is lying through their teeth. So, it is quite possible that you could have a catastrophic outcome despite your best efforts. Mm. And in fact, unless you're a suicidal person, I would expect that at some point you're going to be faced with a dreaded disease that is going to kill you, you know, and um, um, you will probably try and do whatever you need to do not to die, and you will still die, you know. So despite the fact that you bring your best efforts to the, to the, to, to the, uh, uh, you know, the endeavor, precisely because you're not suicidal, there's a bigger plan and you will, you know, that's, uh, so, so whether you like it or not, there is a bigger plan and we've got two choices. We either recognize that there's a bigger plan or we don't. The most profound way that we recognize that there's a bigger plan is by by, by foregoing the one that we thought we had. So, to, to, let's take this thing of dying. So, so I've got cancer, assuming I've got cancer, and I'm, I'm, I'm on my deathbed. I've thrown every single potential um, cure thing, and every, every treatment has failed. I know, so, so now, now maybe a couple of weeks to go, this is the last stretch. And I realize that nothing's going to work. You know, surely there comes a point where I make, should make peace with what's happening here. And I should forego my, my hysterical grabbing at straws to try and stay alive. And surely it'll only be possible to have an eloquent death once I've really done that. You know, I, I, if, if I'm resisting this, you know, still, you know, in the 11th hour trying to find some obscure, I don't know, sort of earwax from the spotted newt of outer Mongolia to that might cure this disease. I mean, this is just undignified. I mean, apart from anything else, you know, so you kind of, you, I'm just, there comes a point where, where, we, where we, we have to forego and realize that there's a bigger thing in charge than ourselves. And the sooner we do that, the happier we become. You know, we need to calibrate right back and do it in, uh, you know, unfortunately, it looks like most people only get to this kind of literally on the home stretch. I mean, there's the last on the 11th hour in their life, but you can live your life like that. That doesn't mean to say you don't work and you're irresponsible and you don't endeavor, but you don't take responsibility for the result. You don't take responsibility for the outcome. You leave it to him.
It's really interesting. I had an encounter last week where I had to take a friend from Heathrow to Newcastle. Her brother was on his deathbed mm. and she had come, she was in quarantine and the request came out that, you know, I need to get to Newcastle from Heathrow, which is nearly a five hour drive. And she hadn't seen her brother in 12 years. And that was his dying wish. And like, you know, like you say, I'm a vessel. Of, I was just there to facilitate that, that transaction. So I drove her to Newcastle and her brother only had a few hours to live. And she spent the time with her brother and he was very angry. He was very angry with how life turned out. But he was 47 years old. His body was riddled with cancer and he was at that last stage of life. Mm. And what cure could there be? There was no cure. There's a, yeah, well, there is an inner cure. Mm. And the inner cure would be no longer to contend and resist, but to submit. Yeah. Which is what our dean is supposed to teach us, the skill of submission. And the only thing, and the only thing there, the only thing there I could do was just to facilitate that conversation with her. And while we were driving there, we were listening to Millennium discourses. Oh, really? Uh-huh. Um, and and I think that brought some peace. It really brought some peace to her that she was able to be there for I'd her like brother. To, I'd like to. I'd like to. Um, uh, I'd like to explore something about this. Mm. Assuming. You got there just too late. You drove all the way to Newcastle, and as you stopped in front of the hospital, this man breathed his last. So she walks into a corpse. Mm. Was the journey a failure or a success from your point of view as the person who drove her there? I would, you know, we had the intention of going. You know, she not being there for her brother would have been, you know, a failure that she didn't get to see him that right that last minute mm. but for me it would have been we had the intention so we were doing the right thing exactly so that that's exactly the point mm. um uh th- th- that's what you're accountable for for doing the driving for for the, the act the outcome is out of your hands yeah if you had if you had made the success or failure of the whole venture dependent on whether she actually got to see the man alive, then, then, uh, then this thing would have failed. The other thing was that she got to see her brother and then, the, and then on the way back, her parents were in quarantine as well from, from Zambia. Oh dear. Both, they were both from, so both of the parents and her were stuck in the hotel in quarantine and both managed to get there. And she told her oh, brother, wow. she told her brother to hang on. And uh-huh. both of them got to see him. And when they returned, the Friday, he passed away on the Sunday. Hmm. So the moral of the story is, you know, anything is possible. Yeah, but take your hands off the wheel, do the piece you can. Yes. Do the piece you can and leave the outcome. And you do that, then the outcome is always will always amaze you. 
even if the outcome is apparently bad in the fullness of time you'll you'll see that that was actually the best thing that could have happened yeah we've got a couple of minutes um you said that achieving that state of being truly humble or self-effacing doesn't happen easily you described it as putting yourself at the edge would you call this taking risks I, I think you could you could describe it as, as such because it's um you um you know a person who always plays it safe can't discover that they're inadequate you know if I, if I only stick to very limited sort of uh, parameters and um I, I i don't put anything at risk <clears throat> how do i know how do i know that i can trust life mm. you know i mean surely it is only once you take a risk, once you've done something courageous, and things have gone right, despite the fact that you weren't adequate to the, the, the requirement, that's when you learn how to trust. You, know, um, you don't learn to trust if you, uh, if you always play it safe, if everything's under control. By definition, control and trust are opposites. You know, if I, if I control you, it means I don't trust you. If I trust you, there's no need to control you, which, you know, so, and, and if I always play it safe, I always go within the limits of what I can control. Yeah, I mean, so that, you know, that's like, uh, you know, that's not, there's, there's no growth there. There's no learning there. And there's certainly no development of trust. So you very often find people who are, um, uh, you get people really deep uh, inner development. Are, are, are immigrants Immig people in, because they've put themselves at great risk they've left their home they've left the familiar they've put themselves in a foreign world uh, uh, and they've uh, by having done that they they they've learned that uh, you know um, uh, um, they they survived despite being vulnerable you know that that life did work for them that it was possible on that note, Jazakallah Khair, Sheikh Saab. Thank, thank you, you, Thank you so much, and we'll join you in our next discourse. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. Allah Hafiz. Listeners, you are listening to Millennium Discourses. We will be back tomorrow with another topic. We would like to thank Etzko Skatema. Till tomorrow, Allah Hafiz from us all.